here in front of me. Uh, that would be super awesome. There goes Pastor Nate. He's going to take care of that. Um, there's that, but I don't want that. I want to stand. So, um, yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for uh, being here today. Like I said earlier, I'm Pastor Jake. I'm new. If you're new here, I'm new with you. Um, if you're not new here, hopefully you're excited about what God is doing in our church and what God is bringing uh, through me and my family. Um, if you're not new here and you're not excited, just slow your roll for a second, all right? Just slow your roll because it's going to be great. I believe God is going to do something awesome. Today we are um, celebrating 20 years as a church and uh, we are in our series, You Are Here. And we're in the fifth week of that series and... Um, it's an exciting day to be here, and in this series we've talked about four arenas that you do your life in, and uh, where you are in your life. We've talked about each of those, and so we've talked about uh, your mind, uh, school, work, and family. And today we are talking about, thank you Pastor Nate, we are talking about uh, church, and so it's fitting day to do that, to talk about church, and uh, I want to uh, take it from Big C Church down to Little C Church. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can grab it and uh, head over to Genesis chapter 12. That's where, where we will start. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab uh, your iPhone or your phone, tablet, whatever. Head over to the YouVersion Bible app. And we've got all of our um, notes and scriptures already up there for you to, to grab and use today. So, uh, to talk about Big C Church down to Little C Church, we're going to have to uh, jump around a little bit in the scriptures today, uh, so be ready for that. We're going to talk big picture, and uh, we're going to have to look at the past, and the past is a funny thing. Um, in fact, for all of the fear and, and our anxiety and, and sometimes our excitement about the future, the past is that thing that can either make what we are doing now uh, full of life and vitality and energy, or the past can also rob us of life and vitality and energy now. So if we're stuck in past failures or the shame of past sin, or we're stuck in past success and not living Living in present realities, the past is a thing that can hold us back. It can hold us back and keep us from pressing on like the, like, uh, the Apostle Paul says to do, to forget what's behind and to press on towards what is ahead. And so uh, that's one of the mistakes we can make with the past, but there's another mistake uh, you can make with the past. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't know anything of the past... If you only know small strokes and you don't know, you know nothing of broad strokes. If you only know your life but you know nothing of the greater story that is in the past, then um, it, can, it can go bad for you and it, it, can, it can get you focused on just you and nothing else and it can, it can lead you down the wrong path and you might not be able to learn from past mistakes. And this is made worse by um, the last 200 years, our uh, society just becoming even more transient, right? And so uh, even, you know, just with roads and cars and today it's, it's most, more likely for you to live away from your family and do job and career and all that away from where you grew up than it is that you would do it where you grew up. And so uh, the latest statistic says that uh, Americans on average move every three to five years. And so when you're in a culture that is constantly moving from place to place, picking up and settling in and, and all of that over and over and over, then you become uh, dis, 
you become disjointed from anyone else in your life that would make you realize that you're here for a bigger thing, a bigger purpose, and you would lose, you lose that big picture uh, mentality. And, and so what happens is you become disconnected and you become lonely and you have this um, this thing where this restlessness where your life kind of feels like it doesn't have meaning because it's all about you and all about your for and no more and you're kind of disconnected. So that's something that we, uh, a mistake we can make with the past. So I want to talk to you today about the, the meta-narrative, the big picture of the church, God's plan since the beginning of time to win the world back to him through the church. I want to tell you where we came from, and by we, I mean the believers here at Great Oaks Community Church and every person in this building today. But to even have this discussion, we've got to go back to the beginning, and by beginning I mean around 1440 B.C., 1440 B.C. is when the oral traditions of creation and the first five books of the Old Testament uh, hit Moses and he writes them down. He begins to write them down in 1440 B.C. And so he is um, writing about things that happened before he was alive. And in Genesis he writes that God creates the world, the universe, in this shalom and in this rhythm and in this peace and it's all good in the garden and everything works like it's supposed to work so we have wine but we don't have alcoholism we have food but we don't have gluttony we have sex but we don't have lust we have marriage but we don't have in-laws right (laughs) I'm just seeing if you're listening I love my in-laws just kidding just kidding we were getting serious there for a second so I just had to throw that out there all right He creates it in this perfection, and then sin enters the world and kind of messes that whole thing up, and everything begins to spiral out of control. Now, in that spiraling, God comes to a guy named Abraham, and he says some things that I want you to see. This is um, in 2091 B.C., Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, what does it say? All the families of the what? Earth, say that with me, all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. So God shows up to Abraham and he says, I'm going to reconcile, I'm going to fix, I'm going to bring back shalom and peace and rhythm, just like I created the universe to work in the beginning. I'm going to bring that back and I'm going to do it through your descendants. I'm going to win the world back to me through your descendants. And Abraham answers and says, that's a nice dream, God, but I don't have any sons. And he says, literally, my wife is old and as good as dead. Now, if you want to get on a good side with your wife, you probably don't say she's as good as dead, all right? But that's what Abraham said a couple times. So he goes, my wife is as good as dead. His point is, I ain't having no kids. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't possibly get a a son, much less my descendants become a nation. I can't do this. And 
uh, God says, don't worry about that. And decades go by, and Abraham still doesn't have a son. But finally, God gives him a son in Isaac in 2066 B.C. Some other things happen in there. A kid named Ishmael, which has created us problems that we're still dealing with today. Now go over to Genesis 22. Genesis um, 22 We'll pick it up from there. We've got the son of the promise, Isaac. Now, this is 2054 B.C., and God comes to Abraham, who loves Isaac like you fathers love your sons. And he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I want you to kill Isaac. And Abraham goes, what? What about that whole thou shalt not kill thing, God? I mean, is that not in the law yet, but I think it's something that we should follow. And God goes, I want you to kill Isaac. And so Abraham goes, all right. So he, he grabs some kindling to make a fire. He packs it onto the donkey. He grabs the knife and he grabs Isaac and they start to head up the hill. And as they're on their way, Isaac ain't no fool, right? And so Isaac is looking around going, we got the knife. We got the wood. Dad, what are we sacrificing? Abraham, even in that moment, answers in faith and says, God will p- provide a sacrifice, Isaac. God will provide a sacrifice. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God's going to provide a ram, and it's going to be all right, Isaac. It's going to be all right. They get up onto the hill. Abraham follows through. He ties Isaac down, raises the knife, and I can only imagine that tears are streaming down his face. And he begin, as he begins to kill his son, Isaac, as he's lowering the knife, God says, stop! Stops Abraham and saves Isaac. They find a ram. They sacrifice it. God provides. Read starting in Genesis 22, starting in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord, just after that happened, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, My, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations, everybody say, all the nations, All the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God says, I'm going to use you and your descendants to bless the whole world. He didn't say he was just going to bless Israel. He didn't say, I'm going to raise up a nation and it's that nation that I'm going to bless. In both instances of this covenant, it's called the Abrahamic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant. In both instances of this covenant, he has said, I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. It's not just about you. I'm going to make a nation, but it's not going to be just about you. It's going to be about reconciling the world back to myself. Now, this becomes consistent, constant language throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples here. At Mount Sinai, around 1446 B.C., Moses goes up onto the mountain and God says this, The whole earth is mine, but I will make of you a kingdom of 
priest. Now, if you go and you study the priestly system, the priest's job was to do business between laymen and God, right? That was the priest's job. And so God was saying, I'm going to create a whole nation of priests to bring back the rest of the world in right relationship with me, to do business between the world and me. So you've got it at Sinai where the Ten Commandments and the law is given. And then after Moses dies and Joshua and the Israelites cross over into Jordan, into the promised land um, in, in 1406, cross over the Jordan into the promised land in 1406 BC, Joshua says, God did this so that all the people of the earth might know that there's a God. As Solomon dedicates the temple in 959 BC, in his prayer, he says, We have built this temple so that all the people of the earth might know your name. If you'll skim through the Psalms, you'll see time and time again, let the nations rejoice. Let the nations bow down. Let the whole earth sing praises to God. It's also consistent in the prophets. The prophets are constantly saying, this isn't about Israel. This is going to be about the world. The nations are going to come and bow down. Let me show you three of those, although I could show you tons. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's 625 B.C. And then, in Ezekiel, chapter 37, let me see if I can get there. Ezekiel, chapter 37, it says this in verse 27. My dwelling place shall be with them. He's talking about the end, the end result of everything. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know, the nations will know that I am the Lord who, sanctif who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So that was um, in 585 B.C. Then this is said of the Messiah in 520 B.C. in, in Zechariah. It says this in chapter 9, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10 in Zechariah. And he shall speak, talking about the Messiah, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this wasn't going to be a Jewish thing. This wasn't going to be just an Israel thing. This was going to be through the Jews, through your descendants, Abraham, I will bless the whole world. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to bring back the whole world into shalom and peace like I created it to be. Then after the prophets, we get 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testaments. And then the Messiah is born. And Christ comes on the scene and he continues this global language. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the what? The world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 10, he says he has other sheep that aren't in this flock. He says they're not Jews. And so all of a sudden, there's, it's not Jew and Gentile. It's, it's everybody. It's, it's everybody. And then you've got this really interesting thing happening as Jesus is hanging on the cross in Matthew 27 and he cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lema abachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now some people take this passage in Matthew 27 and they pair it with a passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be 
sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what they'll say is at that moment when, when Jesus was on the cross, all of the sin of mankind was poured onto him. And because of that, he became sin and God turned his back on Jesus and couldn't look at Jesus anymore because of the sin that was on him. He turned his back on Jesus. And that's why at that moment there were clouds and it got dark and, and there was a ripping of the curtain and all of that happened because Jesus, because God, I should say, was turning his back on Jesus. Has anybody ever heard that, that God couldn't look on Jesus when, anybody heard that before when he, when he was on the cross? Yeah, that's a pretty prevalent teaching that God couldn't look on him because he had this sin. There are some problems with that interpretation. Um, the first is that even if God turns his back, he can still see. I'm just throwing it out there. He's God, all right? He's God. Um, the other thing is, just because it's cloudy out doesn't mean you're getting away with anything, all right? It's not like, oh, there's cloud. Let's go. He'll never know, all right? It's not like that. There's some problems with this interpretation, but is it coincidence that if you turn to Psalm 22, it would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says the same thing. And then it says, they've pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? It's in Psalm 22. It's talking of the Messiah. And then at the very end of Psalm 22, it says this. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Could it be that Jesus on the cross is just pointing back to Psalm 22 and going, here we go. Here we go. We're going to win the whole world. Let's go. It's happening. Now the whole world will know. So you have this in Jesus' teachings and while he's on the cross. And then after his resurrection, you even have it in the Great Commission. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. Everybody say all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. And then from that moment that Jesus gives this command, all of the disciples and the apostles, they all run up into the upper room, lock the door. They don't go out. They don't make disciples. They don't go into all nations. They go and they hide. They're scared and they're praying. What are we going to do? They're praying and praying and praying and they are absolutely scared. The Bible says that tongues of fire fall. Everybody begins to speak in a tongue. And now these guys that were scared little children beforehand become unbelievably emboldened. So they walk out into the square and, and Peter, the apostle Peter, stands up and he says, Men of Israel! And he begins to preach a message about the Christ. And at the time it was Passover and so there were Romans from all over, Roman Jews or Jews from all over the Roman Empire in the area. And as he spoke, everybody understood him in their own language. And so they're hearing him in their own dialect and understanding and it just, it freaked them out. It just freaked them out. The book of Acts tells us that on that day, 3,000 men became believers in Jesus Christ, and the church began. Now, we've got a problem. If 
we've gone from 2091 BC to 33 AD at this point. And we've got a problem here if what God said he was going to do in Abraham is going to actually happen. Because those 3,000 people, those 3,000 men who just gave their lives to Christ, they're Jews. There is not one Gentile, there is not one Roman, they're all Jews. And the church begins to grow and grow and grow with Jewish people. Now fast forward to Acts 10. We have a man named Cornelius, and it says he's a God-fearing man. He's not a Jew, he just thinks there's a God. An angel of the Lord shows up and says, In Joppa there's a man named Peter who's staying with his friend Simon who is a tanner. Go get him. Get your soldiers. Send them. Go get Peter to come to you. Grab him. Bring him to your house. Now, as the soldiers head to Peter's or to Simon's house to pick Peter up, Peter is on the roof in the sixth hour praying. And the Bible says, that the book of Acts says that he sees a vision of a sheet that is coming down. And on it, he sees unclean animals. And he hears the, the voice of the Lord say, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter, this happens three times. And Peter says every time, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to defile myself. And God says, whatever I have made and declared clean is clean. And the text says that Peter, after this vision, was just inwardly perplexed as to what this vision could mean. He had no idea. It just lit him up. And so as he's pondering that, what could this vision possibly mean? There's a knock on the door. And he goes, and it's Cornelius' soldiers, and they're there to, to take him. And they go, we're taking you to our master's house, Cornelius' house. And, and, and Peter's probably like, no, no, you're not. I'm a Jew. You're a Gentile. I don't even go to Gentiles' houses. Like, you, I don't even, I don't dine with you. I don't hang out with you. I don't go to your house. There's no way I'm going with you. But then it dawns on Peter, and he goes, wait a second. Sheep from heaven. Dirty, clean, dirty, clean. Okay, maybe God's doing something. So he goes, I'll go with you, but I'm going to take my boys with me. Because I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile and I'm not even supposed to be in your house. So I'm going to take my boys and I'll go with you. And so reluctantly he goes with Cornelius and he showed, or with the soldiers and he shows up at Cornelius' house and he says, Cornelius greets him and says, I sent for you because I had this vision from the Lord. And Peter goes, I only showed up because I had a vision from the Lord. And then there's this really awkward stare off that happens. I was just going to do it right now. Okay. Um, once they got through that, then he, Peter comes in and begins to share the gospel with Cornelius, his family, and the whole household. And in the middle of the sermon, the Acts 10 says the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his entire family and they begin to speak in tongues. And Peter looks back at the rest of the Jews he brought with him and he's like, the, the Jews are probably like, uh-oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Like, we didn't see this coming. And Peter goes, hey, if God's given them the same spirit he's given us, should, shouldn't we just baptize them? And I'm thinking the Jews back there are probably like, I got a good reason not to. Uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem will murder us. That's, that's why. Let's not do this. And he, let, no, let's not do that. And Peter's like, give me some water. And so he baptizes Cornelius and his household. And before this group of people gets back to Jerusalem, word has already spread and beat them there that Gentiles have received Christ and have been brought into the family and have been 
have seen this, they've seen the Spirit work in them. And so there's this whole theological debate that happens. And so when they get back to Jerusalem, the, the Jews are demand, the Jewish Christians are demanding from them, hey, did Cornelius and his household get circumcised? Did Cornelius get circumcised? And Peter's like, the dude's 42. So no. He didn't. And it's not even about that anymore. It's about, you know, your heart is circumcised. Now, now it's baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is how it works. And we're not even doing that anymore. And so he, he starts to kind of explain things. And this huge theological, do they have to become Jews in order to be Christian kind of debate breaks out among the early church. It was the first crisis of our young faith. And then by Acts 15, Saul has become Paul, and he just doesn't care. And so he's going out to the Gentiles, and he's preaching the gospel, and Gentiles are coming to know Christ in huge numbers. And so he's like, I don't need, let them argue, okay? I don't even care. Acts 15, the council of Jerusalem happens, and the church reluctantly says, okay, Gentiles are a part of what God is doing through Christ to reconcile himself back to the world. That happens around 39 AD. Now let's just talk history. Three years later in 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt and the church begins there. In 49 AD, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul heads to Greece and establishes the church there. In 52 AD, the Apostle Thomas heads to India. In 54 AD, Paul goes on his third missionary journey. By this time, he's writing the book of Romans, and he says that wherever he goes, Gentiles will do the law. What he's saying is that in every culture, there's this objective evidence of God, and it doesn't sound crazy to them. They, they they're transformed by the gospel. God has written his law in the hearts of all men so that no matter where people go, where we go, they come to know Christ in a powerful way. In 174 AD, the church is born in Austria. By 280 AD, there's the first written knowledge of rural churches, rural, that's a hard word, rural churches in uh, northern Italy. This is a big deal because until that time, uh, Christianity was a total urban, just an urban religion. In fact, the word pagan actually literally means someone outside the city. And so it was an urban religion. It hadn't gone out of the city yet. And so in, but in 280 AD, we get, we get these churches that are outside the city. By 350 AD, 31.7 million people claim Christ as Lord. That's roughly 53% of the Roman Empire at the time. In 432 A.D., Patrick heads to Ireland to start the church there. We celebrate this every year by getting smashed and pinching one another. In 596 A.D., Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to what is now England to reintroduce the gospel. The missionaries settle in Canterbury and baptize 10,000 people in the first two years. The church grows in 635 A.D., the first church springs up in China. In 740 A.D., Irish monks 
reach Iceland and the church is born there. In 900 AD, missionaries reach Norway. By 1200 AD, the Bible is available in 22 different languages. In the 1450s, the first Bible is printed in mass quantities on a printing press. In 1498, the first church is reported in Kenya. In 1554, there are 1,500 converts to Christ in what is now called Thailand. The church is born. Throughout that century, the 1500s, the Reformation erupts within Europe, within the church in Europe, and and with it a renewed commitment to the word and reaching uh, the world for Christ. One branch of that movement, the Anabaptists, become known for their commitment to, uh, to the idea of personal salvation and a public profession of faith through baptism. Out of the Anabaptists come the Amish and the Mennonites. In 1683, the first settlement of European Amish and Mennonite believers is formed in Germantown, Pennsylvania, a British colony. Over the next century, over 8,000 more arrive and establish churches in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Iowa, and Illinois. In the 1800s, a different reformation happens in these settlements As some begin to champion the teaching that people are saved by grace through faith alone and made a new creation in Christ, the movement faces persecution. And in 1866, it forms its own church. It starts out as a Mennonite movement, but with a commitment to the Bible and the Great Commission, eventually it changes its name to the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, the FEC. Fast forward a few years, in 1958, A community of these believers are drawn together in Morton, Illinois. Grace Church is planted as a part of the FEC. In the years to follow, the word of God is preached, lives are transformed, missionaries are supported and sent out, and three church plants are started, one of which is named Great Oaks Community Church, planted in a little town called Germantown Hills. Pastor Bruce Dow is the founding pastor. In the early years, the church grows and defines its identity and purpose, And in the summer of 2002, Pastor Bill White becomes the senior pastor, and the church sees much growth under his leadership over 15 years. By 2017, the church has an attendance of over 1,000 people on Easter Sunday, supports missions all over the world, and is actively shining the light of Christ in central Illinois with the hope to plant more churches someday to reach more people. On and on and on I could go. What I've given you is a tiny thread in the infinite tapestry of all that God has done in Christian history to get us here, to get you and I here. Here, in this place right now, you are here. And all of it goes back to exactly what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, exactly what he promised in Genesis 22, exactly what Ezekiel, Habakkuk, and Zechariah, and the rest of the prophets said, exactly what Jesus spoke of, exactly what happened throughout the New Testament and into church history all the way up to this point. It continues to push itself forward over and over and over again. This is history. This is what's going on. Every nation, every war, every plague, every bit of persecution from Genesis to Revelation through church history to now, from Jerusalem to Germantown Hills, everything that has ever happened in every corner of the world exists for one reason alone, the church, the gospel of Christ's church. 
is how God has chosen to get himself glory and to save the world. It pushes and drives everything. Do you know how the church left Jerusalem in the first century A.D.? Stephen was murdered, martyred. Do you know how the church came here? The Puritans were being persecuted. Everything is about what God is accomplishing through his church. Listen, beloved. This is what you're caught up in. When I say you are here, this is where you are. This is what's happening. We're right in the thick of it. This is the story of creation. There is no other story. Every other story is a footnote in this story. And if you go back into history and you study it, you'll find how it pushed, exalted, and helped this story. This is history. 1440 B.C. is when the first document was written. It's not when it happened. It's when it was recorded. Some 6,000 years of this happening exactly like he said it would. And here's what I want you to hear. It's not over. Aren't you glad it's not over? It's not over. It's not done yet. It's still going. You find yourself here at Great Oaks right now. This is your part of the story. This is your chance to push it forward, to be the church instead of just go to church. You are here. Be, be the church. So where do we go from here? I think I just want to ask you a few questions and then I'll close. That's something that they teach us in seminary to say I'm, I'm, as I close. When I close, I'm, I'm almost closing. It means nothing. <laughs> okay. So a couple of questions I just want to ask you as I close. It means nothing. Okay. Uh, number one, where is your focus? Where's your focus? Is it on your little tiny narrative or is it on the meta-narrative of the church? The God bringing the world into right relationship with him through Jesus because, because I think many of us live our lives out in a way that we don't ever put any thought if any probably nothing no thought to this idea that God is using us the church to reconcile the world back to him we're so caught up in our own stuff that we rarely consider seas of lost people that God wants to reach through you and me the church let me ask it in a different way. Where is your treasure? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. Then his, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then he said, it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure in a field, right? And he sees the treasure and it's so great that he just covers it back up and he runs and he gets all that he has and he sells it so that he can buy that treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure. It's not, hey, uh, is this treasure worth it or not? I don't know. It's not a time for you to think about it like, oh man, I don't know if it's worth it. Now the Bible says in his joy, with great joy, he runs and he's happy to sell everything that he has in order to gain that treasure. This doesn't even compare 
It's not a let me weigh it out and figure out what's more valuable thing. This is with great joy. The kingdom, what God is doing, using this church, little c, to expand the church, big c, is valuable. It's worth everything you have. One last question for you to think about. Where are your priorities? Are you focused on your story or the story? And we've had a great 20 years here at Great Oaks, haven't we? God has done so much, but it's not over. I believe the best is yet to come. I, I want us to be the church in our community. Church isn't something you go to, it's who you are, right? So, so we've asked you to come prepared today to give extra. We're, we're going to take up an offering for nine local organizations that are on the front lines Helping the lost, those in need in real tangible ways right here in our community. We'll give you a chance to get that offering ready, write your check or whatever um, during our last song. Then you can drop the bucket or drop it in the buckets on the way out. They're going to be at the doors. You can drop it in there. You can also go online to greatoakscc.org slash give and give there or you can text it in. Just text an amount. If you're going, I don't have check, cash, that's me. I don't ever have check or cash then you can grab your cell phone and just text an amount and 20th anniversary to 84321. We've asked that each adult prayerfully consider giving $100 towards that today and, and much more if you're able. I'd love to raise $50,000 for these organizations today and I believe we could do that if we ever got an understanding of the value of this. If you can give a 10000 or more, do it. Don't do the math, just do your part, right? I'll say that again. Don't do the math, just do your part. Ask God what he wants you to give and follow, be obedient. But we're not just asking you to give money. Writing a check might be the easiest thing you could do. We're challenging you to give time, to serve, to give at least five hours volunteering at one of these organizations, to be the church, working hand in hand to serve those in need. These organizations, all nine are set up in the lobby don't leave here without connecting to at least one, signing up to volunteer in some way, get more information. So our challenge is $100 in five hours. It's not that much. That's our challenge to you. As we celebrate 20 years, not by just eating cupcakes, although the cupcakes are pretty good, but by being the church, by pushing this story forward, by exalting what God is doing in and through the church. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for you today, for us. May we give everything we have for the church, the gospel, the kingdom of God. May we gladly sacrifice our own story for the story. And may the next 20 years at Great Oaks be even more fruitful than the first 20. God bless you. Thank you so much. Stay in worship with us. One last song. Get your offering ready. What, ready? Get, give on the way out. Talk with one of the ministries in the lobby. And also stop by Pastor Bill and Vicki. Make sure you tell them how much they mean to you. Um, encourage them. Pray for them if you want to on your way out. God bless. We'll see you next week. Feel free to put your hands together.